Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Trump temperament. All right, Richard, try as we might, uh, you and I cannot avoid the topic of Donald Trump, Republican nominee for president now officially. And also, as it turns out, the subject of a lawsuit over his Trump University program, of course, is that's where I'll start you today. Even though there was this notion for a while that Donald Trump would all of a sudden take on a much more sober tone when he secured the Republican nomination, he's been attracting a lot of criticism lately for his claim that the judge who's going to be hearing the Trump University case might be biased against him. Because the judge is, in his words, a Mexican. In fact, the judge is from Indiana. His parents immigrated from Mexico. But uh, a lot of Republicans have been bothered by this, have gone out of their way to disavow Trump's remarks. Uh, most recently, we had Mark Kirk, Republican senator from Illinois, actually withdraw his endorsement of Trump based on this. So let's take it from that angle, Richard. Do Republicans, many of whom had just started reconciling themselves to Trump, have to start rethinking that now. Uh, my view is they have to start to stop with a great deal of earnestness. I, this is such an outrageous set of charges. It's so bad at so many levels. First of all, as a matter of character, it indicates this man is utterly incapable, incapable of controlling his emotions and his temperaments in public. He has been a bully boy for so long that he doesn't know what it is to be presidential. And most people, when they realize that their roles are going to shift, try to basically organize a way to shift their personality. They'll get a haircut. They'll give up cigars. They'll put on ties. They'll take elocution lessons. They'll do anything. And this character simply doubles down on incivility. Uh, the second thing is the particular kinds of charges that he makes are exceptionally grave for two reasons. One, it's a vicious kind of ethnic slur against somebody. To say that you're not fit to be a judge because you're a Mexican in the general case is just beyond horrible in a country which has people from so many different situations. And it opens up the complete balkanization of justice can you imagine somebody who's Mexican saying, well, you can't judge my case because you're white. And all of a sudden what we do is we now have critical race theory being applied by everybody to everybody. And it means that it's impossible to maintain a common culture with respect to our most essential institutions, that is courts, which have to be justice is blind, free and open access with respect to everybody. The third thing is it's a complete insult to an individual person. I mean, I didn't do much research on this, but, you know, two minutes on Wikipedia showed that this man had actually been involved in the prosecution of a um, cartel, drug cartel operating out of Mexico and was subject to death threats by Mexicans for his action when he was a public prosecutor. So here you're talking about somebody uh, as one of those great nameless hordes coming from outside the country and ruining us. And what you do is you have a guy who's put himself in the line of fire in a way which can only be described as admirable. And so when you think that not only is Trump absolutely reckless in the way in which he deals with institutions, he's absolutely reckless in the way in which he deals with individual people, their reputations and so forth. When I wrote a column about this on Ricochet. I said, look, I don't think that this is an impeachable offense uh, to be vicious and ugly. It is, by the way, if you're curious, clearly actionable defamation um, of a very serious sort, damages being, of course, a perpetual puzzle in these kinds of cases. But it's a serious, serious offense. 
But my fear is if you've got somebody who's this unhinged over a matter like this, what's he going to do if there's something really that's important at stake? And he could easily go over the line, endangering the nation on the one hand or committing criminal actions on the other hand. So I think in effect that you know he's got a lot of digging to do to get himself out of this hole. And, and to my mind, the Republican Party could say the following very simple proposition. People voted for him before they saw these kinds of antics. If you put him up now against one respectable establishment Republican candidate, he could not win given this kind of behavior. We do not give him a nomination. We allow it to be withdrawn by virtue of the fact that his his conduct subsequent to the um, uh, primary votes has been unacceptable for a Republican candidate for national office. So, Richard, as I mentioned at the top, that you know there was this notion for a while that just wait for Donald Trump to get the nomination. At that point, he'll settle down. That argument seems to have less currency now, but there are still some people who are making it. Is that is this something that strikes you as as possible? Do the partisans have too much faith in Trump's capacity to change this behavior? Boy, I wish I knew the answer to this particular question. I mean, first of all, in order to figure out whether it's going to work, one has to face the grim reality that delegate selection in every state differs in some material degree from every other state. So it may well be that people are pledged to Trump to vote for him in the general election, but may be temperamentally disposed to despise him after his behavior. And some of these broke these voters could be essentially broken off from the coalition because they don't regard themselves as being pledged in the way in which people who were Trump supporters from the uh, beginning were. It's also a complete nightmare with respect to the way in which the rules operate. But generally speaking, there is a kind of an implicit understanding that anybody who runs for public office or serves in any kind of capacity has to show a bonus mores, meaning good morals. And so if you look at various kinds of athletes, their contracts are forfeited if they engage in the kind of behavior that he does. And let's just be a little bit more specific. We've had a number of sports people people, managers, players, uh, announcers who have said something of a racial nature, which has been a slur. And the typical response of the network is to just can them instantaneously. No appeal, no review, no nothing. Uh, What Trump has done is a thousand times worse than that of any sports commentator, most of whom are trying to be candid. They're trying to be delicate. They're trying to be balanced. But this man was simply trying to intimidate a judge in order to back off in a case in which he had an interest. I regard that as is the worst form of intimidation. I don't think that I'm alone in this. Now, uh, can he do something to rehabilitate himself? I think the answer is maybe. What he has tried to do is to distance himself from his previous remarks, but it takes no genius to realize that he did not say, I'm sorry for the wrong things I've done, when he says, I'm not doing it anymore, because people will now say, the only reason he's not doing it anymore is that it backfires, so the next time he thinks it's going to work, he's going to engage in the same pattern of abusive behavior. I mean, my inclination for the Republicans is to basically tell them to go. And in fact, you know, I'm certainly no Hillary Clinton supporter. Um, but, you know, the protest vote for the Libertarian Party, which would probably put her over the top, is a very viable vote for lots of people who can't bring themselves to vote for a liberal democratic platform all of whose components they intensely dislike, uh, but cannot bring themselves to a man who on some issues actually displays occasional signs of lucidity, but whose personal decorum is a disqualification for public office. 
Let me take you to the, the legal allegation that Trump's making here and probably take it more seriously than it deserves. But I'm just curious sort of for our audience. Trump, as you've pointed out, he really has not offered anything in the way of proof here that there's actually a bias on the behalf of this judge. But, but let's play out the thought experiment. Donald Trump is a polarizing guy, an unpopular guy in a lot of circles. So even if this judge doesn't have a bias, it's not hard to imagine that somewhere out there in the universe there are judges who would conceivably if Donald Trump came before them. What would a party to a case have to do to prove that a judge was sort of hopelessly biased, especially if that party was a sort of contentious public figure like Donald Trump? Well, I mean the first thing to understand is if you make the disqualification rule sufficiently lax, every judge in the United States is going to be disqualified right. unless right. they're a Trump supporter. And the law has never gone that far. Uh, the first ground of disqualification is very narrow and not applicable here. It's that you've got some kind of financial or family tie with one of the two parties involved in the case. So if he could say about this judge, um, oh, you know what? It turns out that he had stock in my companies and they lost it and he was resentful. You you could see why he ought to disqualify himself, but somebody else, including other Mexican or Hispanic judges, could take the role. Uh, the other thing that you would have to do is to show that there was some kind of past history of the judge, which essentially gave you objective reasons to believe that there was a kind of bias in question. Uh, there was a judge named, I think, Sorokin, um, who was involved in certain cases against the tobacco companies when I actually worked for them. And you know, the companies went into court. They were actually able to show that the level of public pronouncements that he had made on and off the bench meant that he could not give the companies a fair trial with respect to the issues that were in front of him. But this has to be intensely individualistic, highly documented, and it has to be persuasive either to the judge himself, which sometimes it is, or to everybody else. And, and therein, in fact, lies another point. If you're trying to talk about the disqualification issues, the most important thing to remember is most of the time when a judge doesn't fit the case, the judge will be aware of it and will recuse himself or herself from the particular thing so that you don't have the coercive motion to dismiss taking place. Um, it's only in the rare case that you actually get these kinds of confrontations. In this particular circumstances, there is not a shred of evidence, not a scintilla of anything that that makes the case look, in fact, remotely plausible. Sure, he's going to lose motions on discovery. Everybody loses motions on discovery. And what has to happen, in effect, is so far above what he's done in this particular case that I don't believe his lawyers have filed one of these motions. If they did file a motion, it would be a disaster. The judge would correctly rule against him. And then they would go into court essentially knowing that they've insulted the judge and they're going to make their life, if anything, more difficult than it would otherwise have been. And so it's really strange about Trump is if he cared about this, he should have said not one thing. He should have filed some papers and then let the papers speak for themselves. But the man is a braggadocio. And so not only does he do this, but he hushes up all his assistants when they're desperately trying to tell him, back off, Donald, you've gone a step too far. He really does not understand that you can't play poker when you've got a losing hand, which is apparent from the cards on the table. And he's willing to double down when it's lost and then that's the sign of a person who cannot be trusted with any diplomatic or executive functions. Richard, you're making a lot of arguments here about Donald Trump's character. And I, I think I can stipulate for you that Donald Trump is on the far end of the spectrum there. He's sort of an outlier. But there's a longstanding argument in American politics. We saw it, I think, most recently in sharp relief during the Clinton impeachment about how direct the connection is between presidential character and, and performance in office. How do, you, how do you think about that? What happens, for instance, if I give you Donald Trump 
exact same temperament, but he's willing to sign off on Richard Epstein's entire portfolio of policy ideas. Well, that to me doesn't have the slightest bit to do with this. I mean, even if he was prepared to agree with me, uh, I would not want to have a leader whose implementation of these programs would offend everybody who disagrees with me and perhaps create international incidents of a major point. Uh, Let's go back to the Bill Clinton thing. And I think what you could do is see the political difference between that case and this. Uh, When Clinton got involved with the various sex scandals, the Republicans were very eager to go after him. The Democrats basically sat on their hands. They were very uncomfortable with the situation, but they did not want to go out and to chase him. And the lesson that you learn from all of this is the only time that you can impeach and convict the president is when his own party turns against him. That's what made Watergate and Richard Nixon different from Bill Clinton 25 years later. Now, if you look at this particular case, it's very clear that the Democrats are enjoying the show and the Republicans are absolutely beyond themselves. And when you have your own party in a position where they're in in rebellion against your behavior and your decorum, then you have to take it very, very seriously. What I find to be so offensive is there are large numbers of Democrats. My favorite whipping boy on this is Paul Krugman, former economist. And what this man starts to do is to announce that all Trump is is the instantiation of every other Republican. He just makes public the kind of implicit racism that everybody else in the party has um, in private. And I regard that as a reckless, irresponsible charge for which he should be duly punished. Um, I think, in fact, most of the Republicans feel the way I do. If this is a guy who in any sense of the word is identified with the positions that you hold, knowing that this guy is going to be identified with you cheapens what you do and puts you in an impossible position when it comes to trying to articulate your own view. So I think serious Republicans, in effect, have every reason to be even angrier Trump than the Democrats because when he goes down, he's taking them down. When the Democrats see this man going there, he's taking down the rival party. And this antic in and of itself may be enough to make sure that Clinton, who I think would otherwise be vulnerable even to a guy like Trump, may yet got the nomination. And, you know, everything I'm saying against him is not an endorsement of her. I think that should be perfectly clear. Uh, But I do think, in effect, that to the extent that politics is a zero-sum game, even if you basically say, I'm not going to vote for Trump and not going to vote for Clinton, if you get enough people going from the positive into the neutral file, that could easily be enough to doom a Republican candidacy and take down all of the people who are lower on the tickets. Mark Kirk in Illinois is a perfect example. He's running against a very attractive candidate. He's probably an underdog already. The last thing he needs is to have professional bigotry uh, be imputed to him by Democrats who are all too easy eager uh, to spread the word that all Republicans are simply Trump in disguise. Let me close this out today with sort of a broader consideration of, of Trump and the law. You were recently mentioned in a column, Richard, by Adam Liptak of the New York Times speculating on how President Trump might conduct himself vis-a-vis the judiciary and the rule of law, the separation of powers. You sounded a very cautionary note in that column. Why don't you just briefly here in closing explain your concerns? Well, I mean what happens is if you look at something like the American governance structure, it has two parts to it. One is there's a kind of an explicit written constitution which delineates and broad outlines the essential functions of various parts of government. And then there is this huge amount of informal subtext which actually governs the day-to-day relationships within each of the branches of government 
and across the branches of government. For somebody to be a decent public official, they have to understand the basic outlines on the official formal side and respect them. And one of the reasons why I've been so critical of Barack Obama as a president, I think he really goes over the top when it comes to the way in which executive power is exercised, not only by himself, but by the Department of Treasury, by the Attorney General, uh, by the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. And they don't observe those norms. And I don't think that Donald Trump will observe them either. He may have a different set of friends and foes, but he won't do it. The other thing Obama is somewhat weak on is he's not good at picking up on the soft stuff. People call him aloof, non-responsive and so forth. Doesn't go through the usual congratulatory affairs relationship of one to another. You can survive that. That's a defect in character, but it's not of momentous proportion. With Trump, the sense that you get is if there's been a custom which is universally respected and revered and tested over years, he regards it as who gives a damn. I'm starting over. I'm the new kid on the block. And what happens is if you you have a man who will not observe the formal rules, that already makes him lawless. If you now discover that he won't observe the informal constraints that everybody else follows, it makes him ungovernable. And so this sort of one-two combination of these brash, brutal statements about the general system of the American constitutional government, coupled with these nasty asides, means that he could literally alienate everybody. And what happens in organizations is a common notion of you have somebody who's a really influential person whom nobody trusts, and you have to work around them. And businesses in which you have these workarounds are always dysfunctional because the real lines of authority and the formal lines of authority are hopelessly in conflict. There's a kind of an obvious point. You can't work yourself around the president of the United States. He's too big. He's too powerful. He's too important. He's too commander-in-chief. He's too everything. And so if you get somebody who's bad on institutional knowledge and bad on temperament, you don't want him to be president of the United States. You know, I say this with a certain degree of reluctance, uh, given what I think some of the alternatives are, uh, but this has been in some sense the biggest intellectual and political disappointment of my life, and I remember when Harry Truman was president. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For The Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.